electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Presidential hopeful Nikki Haley. This is not over. How she'd handled tensions in the Middle East and the loss of three American lives in Jordan. How she would punch back. You go after the leaders making the decisions. It's not after Iran, the country. It's after the people who are making these decisions. And chair of the FTC, Lena Khan, why she's putting big tech's AI deals under the microscope. But we also see risk. We see risk of consolidation. We see risk of monopolization. We're already hearing some of the classic national champion arguments. The idea that it's in somehow America's national interest to be protecting monopolies. Plus, Boeing losing market share to Airbus after trouble in the skies. And wrestling's Vince McMahon resigning from the WWE and TKO in the wake of disturbing allegations against him. He had to resign, otherwise the Netflix of the world were going to say, we're not playing. It's Monday, January 29th, 2024. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. It's a Monday morning, and here we go again. Let's talk about uh, the Squawk Up Planner, because we got a lot of things on tap. The Fed kicking off a two-day policy meeting. It starts tomorrow with the latest rate announcement. That's due on Wednesday. We'll also get the latest read on home prices tomorrow. It's also Jobs Week in America, the ADP private payroll uh, report due on Wednesday. We'll get jobless claims and productivity numbers on Thursday. And the January employment report is due on Friday. Also put on Friday. I don't know if you know what's happening on Friday. Is it the jobs report? The Vision Pro goes on sale. Oh, Vision I have Pro to say. For those of the, us who the, are, you know. It does look pretty cool, I will, yes. I will say. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not convinced that it, I'm going to walk away. You're, you're not getting version things. one yet, but okay. But I, but I, I will, if you're on a plane. That would be something that would be really good to shut things out all around. Exactly. Give them that. And then you've got United Airlines, which has now approached Airbus about buying more of its jets to fill a potential void that would be left by the delayed Boeing 737 MAX 10. United CEO Scott Kirby flew to France recently to talk about a possible purchase. A person familiar with those discussions told CNBC that no agreement has been reached. Kirby told us last week that the company had been working on alternate plans. We're now, best case, five years behind on the original delivery uh, of the MAX 10. Um, and as we've gone through the last year, internally at United, we've grown increasingly to believe that, best case, the MAX 10 just gets pushed further and further to the right. So we'd already started working on alternative plans. I think this is the straw, the MAX 9 grounding is probably the straw that broke the camel's back for us. Uh, we're going to at least build a plan that doesn't have the MAX 10 in it. Now, we'll hope that Boeing gets it certified at some point, but we're going to build an alternative plan that just doesn't have the MAX 10 in it. We asked him directly if that was Airbus, if they were negotiating with Airbus. He demurred at that point, but there are only two places to go, Boeing or Airbus. So this seemed like the clear alternative for that. Um, 
Kirby did say that they are not going to be able to reach their growth plans in terms of what they've been promising the street, the number of flights they'd have because of all these delays they've had uh, with the Boeing program. So clearly all of this kind of setting up uh, for some sort of an issue to A little detente of sorts. I also wonder negotiate. what we're going to hear from Boeing later this week on the earnings front. Not right. so much in the earnings themselves because that's not, but when you start to think about what guidance looks like, to the extent they're going to talk about maybe some conversations like this, are they worried about sharing getting taken by Airbus? Right. Um, I don't know how much color we'll really get, but we'll see. Yeah. It, it will be a closely watched uh, report among many this week, along with the tech names, too. I think it's going to be a very big name for technologies Tuesday and Thursday. And then GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley is vowing to stay in the Republican presidential primary race, at least through Super Tuesday. She has told NBC's Meet the Press that she needs to do better in South Carolina than she did in New Hampshire. She criticized the Republican National Committee over a plan that was floated and then dropped to name Trump the presumptive nominee. If you're going to go and and basically tell the American people that you're going to go and decide who the nominee is after only two states have voted, I mean, 48 states out there, this is a democracy. The American people want to have their say in who is going to be their nominee. We need to give them that. I mean, you can't do that based on just two states. And not only that, it's 1,215 delegates to reach the nomination. Donald Trump has 32. I have 17. So let's let this play out. We're going to hear directly from her when Ambassador Haley joins us right here on the Squawk set. Then there's this news. I don't know if you saw this. TKO Group Executive Chairman Vince McMahon has now resigned from the company, will no longer have a role with the company or World Wrestling Entertainment. The announcement coming after allegations were made uh, public on Thursday, accusing him of sexual assault and sex trafficking. McMahon denied the allegations, but said in a statement that he was resigning out of respect for the business. The allegations were filed by General Grant, who uh, alleges that McMahon directed her to have sex with WWE superstar and other men. Uh, Her suit seeks to void a non-disclosure agreement that she reached with McMahon in early 2022. She says that McMahon agreed to pay her $3 million as part of that deal, but ended up only paying her $1 million. Now, last week, of course, TKO and Netflix announced a long-term partnership to bring WWE's flagship weekly program, Raw, to the streaming service in 2025. Um, This raises all sorts of questions because, of course, the deal was made with Ari Emanuel's firm. Uh, I'm not talking about next last week. And I I, I assume, by the way, he had to resign. Otherwise, the Netflix of the world were going to say, we're not playing. I think there's a bigger question, and his diligence gets done, about how the original transaction was done and what kind of diligence was done at that point. If this deal was made in 2022, which was within the which which was in 12 months of the other deal being made. Were they aware of that deal? Did they know? Um, was that acceptable? It's an interesting dilemma and conundrum. I'd be surprised if they knew. But well, and that yeah. but that's that's a real question. And then the separate part is there's all sorts of clients. Yeah. As part of the WME world, right. w- would they be happy knowing if they didn't? I mean, this is where it gets super super duper. Um, as I said, complicated. Yeah, pretty sorted details. Yep. We read through Very some of the allegations on this. Right now, we want to get to the developing story in Jordan. Three U.S. troops were killed in an attack by an unmanned aerial drone attack near the Syrian border over the weekend. At least 34 were wounded when the drone struck near their barracks early in the morning. President Biden blamed Iranian-backed groups for that attack. And NBC's Keir Simmons joins us right now from Amman, Jordan, 
Kier, this is a situation we are watching very closely for what it might mean in terms of an escalation in the area. That's right, Becky. Uh, the escalation is really the crucial part of this, of course, uh, for those uh, servicemen and women who have lost their lives and their families. A terrible weekend. Uh, but there is also this deep concern now uh, that this was Iranian-backed militia responsible uh, for this attack and the president, President Biden, uh, vowing a response. Of course, we already know uh, that the uh, U.S. is locked in a confrontation with the Houthis, another Iranian-backed group in, in the Red Sea, uh, and now this attack, uh, the deadliest attack uh, by uh, fire on U.S. forces uh, in this region since the October 7th uh, attacks in Israel and the uh, Hamas-Israel uh, war in uh, Gaza. So the, the question now is, is how the U.S. Uh, is going to uh, respond. Senator Lindsey Graham, just one of those uh, tweeting uh, overnight saying, hit Iran, uh, hit Iran uh, now. But of course, the question is exactly what that kind of action uh, would involve, because I mentioned uh, the strikes against the, against the Houthis in, in Yemen. We've seen multiple examples of that in over the weeks, and so far, it hasn't stopped the Houthis from continuing their attacks on shipping uh, in uh, the Red Sea. Uh, where this happened uh, here in Jordan, it is right on the border of Syria, Iraq, uh, and here in Jordan. It's a base uh, called Tower 22. Uh, now, a, a group called Islamic Existence, Resistance in Iraq uh, saying that it hit bases in Syria uh, and in Jordan, not counting uh, Tower 22 as one of those bases, it said it hit, but it does appear uh, that the spotlight, uh, the accusation, if you like, is very much on, on that group. And again, that will then track back to Iran. The Iranians this morning, Becky, saying uh, that they do not uh, control this group. They don't issue commands to this group, but they certainly do uh, back this group. And again, that is where the focus is going to be through the day on Iran and whether Iran bears responsibility for what happened here. Here, obviously, there needs to be some sort of a public response. President Biden has admitted that as well. But what are the, the range of options that they could take on? Because not only is this a situation of expanding uh, things in the Middle East and the region, also over the weekends, it seems like it, it, it's not going to be helping in terms of those peace talks or the ceasefire talks that were taking place in Paris. Both sides seem very far apart in regards to what's happening in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, it's a three-dimensional three jigsaw, honestly, isn't it? Uh, you know, you have those talks. Uh, our understanding is that the, those talks have made some progress, uh, but there are still deep uh, questions over uh, whether or not Israel would be prepared to call a, a, a full uh, ceasefire, as Hamas is, is demanding. Uh, and Hamas e equally uh, clearly isn't going to get the, the release of prisoners uh, that it was it has been uh, hoping for and so far has not through these uh, these mismediation uh, if you like managed to persuade the israelis uh, to agree to that that full ceasefire so you have all of that happening and now uh, this and, and, and in many ways what we're seeing here in jordan is what people have been worried about uh, when we've talked about the danger of escalation as as long as all of this uh, all of this continues in the region uh, this is it. The, 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 the three, three U.S. servicemen and women uh, fatally injured, that is the kind of thing that will potentially uh, mean that the Biden administration has to respond or feels it has to respond in terms of what it can do. Well, clearly, 
everything from attempting, looking to target this this group, uh, wherever it is, inside Iraq, inside Syria, but also potentially, and this is what um, some Republicans are already calling for, uh, targeting inside of Iran. And, of course, the issue there, just with the Houthis, will be, if you do that, what is the extent of that action? Does it stop Iran from supporting these groups? And if, and if not, then is it simply symbolic? Kier, I want to thank you. Uh, Kier Simmons from NBC. We appreciate the update. Cheese will be next. Up next, presidential hopeful Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, after losing both the Iowa and New Hampshire contests to former President Donald Trump. He has been literally unhinged ever since I got 43% of the vote in New Hampshire. And so I know what we're doing is working. Plus, how she'd manage U.S. borders and tensions in the Middle East. More Squawk Pod is right after this. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The 2024 electoral calendar's next milestone is the South Carolina primary. Democrats holding their contest this Saturday and Republicans in a few weeks' time on February 24th. Just two candidates remain on the Republican side, former President Donald Trump and challenger Nikki Haley. Here's the former president in his speech to supporters following last week's New Hampshire primary. I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win. She lost. For now, Haley has said she's staying in the race. She ran up and she pretended she won Iowa. And I looked around. I said, didn't she come in third? Yeah, she came in third. And then I looked at the polls. She was talking about most winnability, who's going to win. And I had one put up. I don't know if you see it, but I have one put up. We've won almost every single poll in the last three months against crooked Joe Biden. Almost every poll. And she doesn't win those polls. The former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador in the Trump administration, Nikki Haley, joined our Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin on set today. Becky starts things off. Thank you for being here. Of course. Governor, ambassador. Um, I, I guess the first question is, how do you do it? Because the path to get there has become a lot more difficult. You know, it's interesting because you say that I lost in New Hampshire. It's not really good for an incumbent not to get 43% of the vote. Fair. You know, you look at the fact that the delegate count 
he has 32, I have 17. It takes 1,215 right. to get it. And so, you know, a lot of the reason that I am for term limits is the same reason that I will say kind of to the media class and the political classes, they're so cynical. You know, they've forgotten what it's like to have good things happen and to be hopeful and to be optimistic. This is not over. It's far from over. Okay. And what I'll tell you is, look, he has been literally unhinged ever since I got 43% of the vote in New Hampshire. And so I know what we're doing is working. Yeah, but I also know that we had much, hundreds much more, of people. I'm the, sorry? The attacks have gotten much more directed and much tougher um, coming at you. Yeah, but that means I'm doing well. Right. I no, mean, from I don't, him. From him, I mean. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I know him well. And I know that when he feels vulnerable, when he feels threatened, he lashes out. And you saw the night of the New Hampshire election. He literally had a temper tantrum on stage. And it's because he knew that he had told everybody we were going to be 30 points down, mm -hmm. and we weren't. And we came in at 43%, and he just lost his mind over it. But in order to win, you have to win some states. Right now, the polls have you down sharply in your own home state. So what, what states do you win, and how do you kind of take back the narrative? Well, I think you look at, this? we gained 25 points in the last three weeks of New Hampshire. So we've got a month until South Carolina. So we're going to keep building. There haven't been any current polls, but we're going to keep doing it. We had 1,500 people in the upstate of South Carolina. We had 1,000 people in Charleston. Last night we had several hundred in the PD. People are out there excited. They know what my record is, but more than that, they don't want the chaos anymore. They see how President Trump acted. Just think in the last 48 hours what he did. He has a temper tantrum and talks about revenge. Then the next day, he goes and says, anybody that supports her is not going to be part of my MAGA group. So literally, everybody that votes for me and everybody that donates for me can't be part of his club. You can't win a presidency like that. And then he goes and pushes the RNC to name him the nominee. All of that happened. I appreciate it because we raised $4 million in the process. But it goes to show this is who he is. This is what he does. Can I ask you about, and maybe it's threading a needle. I don't know. Maybe there's no needle thread anymore, which is to say he's been much more critical of you. But you arguably have now, and maybe it's because you have to push back, have had to be more critical of him. And how you think about sort of how, you know, tonally even, talking about him because at the same time you look at the Chris Christie's of the world who made their campaign about going after him whereas you I would argue up until maybe even a couple of weeks ago were trying to avoid that part of the conversation I don't maybe you'll disagree with my assessment well there were 14 people in the race right and so my job is to get one fella out at a time and right. so then we got 12 fellas out now it's a two-person race so now of course I'm gonna be going against him when there were 14 in, it didn't make sense for me to do that. I had right. others I had to get out of the way. So now you look at it, and now I'm telling the truth about him. I mean, the truth of the fact is we have to seriously look. This is a man that put us $8 trillion in debt in just four years. Think about that. This is a man who praised China's President Xi a dozen times after China gave us COVID. This is a man who now wants to go and put 10% tariffs across the board, raising taxes on every single American. Think about that for a second. That's what we're talking about. This is a man who continues to go and talk about himself and distract with all the other things. But he, right. that night in, in New Hampshire, after the court case, he's never once talked about the American people. He's so never once talked about how we're going to get the country back on track. What would you do differently in terms of the spending? Because Donald Trump didn't really spend like a Republican. He did things that 
gave money to a lot of places and what would you do differently? Which of those programs would you pair back? You know, he didn't do anything that much different than Biden. He paid off people to get votes. You know, we saw it when he gave out the COVID stimulus checks, the same way we see Biden going and throwing out all this money. The, what I would do different is everything you do with the economy is it should be how to get people less dependent on government. You look at the economy, look at the economy under Trump. Yes, it was good, but at what cost? Look at the economy now under Biden. Everybody's talking about how good it is, but look at how government's grown. That's what you don't want. He did those things to buy votes and it was effective. Absolutely. But look, it's dangerous, too. I'm not going to do things to buy votes. I'm going to be honest with the American people. We've got to let the American people know that what Donald Trump's about to do to you is going to raise every household expense by $2,600 a year. They're going to raise... In, they're going to raise the cost of anything from baby strollers to appliances under Donald Trump. Middle class families can't afford that. Let me ask you two policy questions that are in the news right now. One is immigration and what's happening at the border. There was a sense, maybe, that there could be some kind of deal made on the border. It sounds like Mitch McConnell is now saying that he's hearing effectively from President Trump, don't make a deal. It is better politically not to make a deal because it would it would better effectively the chances of President Trump. By the way, it might uh, better your chances as well. I don't know. So where do you stand on that? Secure that border. It, I don't care what political chances it does. Do the right thing. This is not the time to sit there and wait until November is the when Senate you've got the people right coming through. The, the thing is, when you look at the border deal, and I'm not sure of all the details because it's been drip drip, the one thing that causes me pause is that they don't have the Remain in Mexico policy. You should not want any illegal immigrant to step foot on U.S. soil, period. That is got do to nothing stop. Rather than the perfect, because that's been the argument. I think that Republicans and Democrats are to blame on this. They need to get in a room and figure this out and not, not come out until they finish this. That's the problem is they can do better. But, but do, you think think a, do you think a deal is worse for whoever actually becomes the uh, Republican nominee? Which is to say that right now there's a lot of criticism against this administration given what's happening at the border. If a deal is reached, does he, Biden, get the credit for that? I mean, it's a shame because I don't think anybody should get credit. They should be embarrassed. What has Congress done? What has the president done on the border? You haven't seen anything. So now that you do this, you want us to praise you for doing the right thing that you should have done years ago? Like, why are we even talking about that? The problem in D.C., the problem with politics is they all want to know who's going to get the credit and who's going to get the blame. And the American people fall to the wayside because of it. Start calling things like they are. That's why I've always spoken in hard truths. You may not like what I say, but I'm always going to tell right. you the truth. I but, think that's But just important. back to the Senate bill, would you take it even if it doesn't have the remain in Mexico policy? Because that's been the argument is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that's uh, an age old conversation. But you Washington. know what that means. If they pass this, they'll leave it alone and they won't try and fix it more. We can't allow people to come across the border, period. You've got people on the terrorist watch list. These are not people getting vetted. We can't be okay with that. So I know people are saying, oh, but you've got a little something. Yeah. No. You, this is a national security threat. America's right. acting like it's September 10th. We've got to remember what September 12th felt like. Talking about national security threats, three troops uh, killed over the weekend and, and possibly 25 or 30 others injured on the border of, of Jordan and Syria. What would you be doing right about now in terms of what's happening in the Middle East? Um, would we be going to war? I mean, I, you know. No, the goal is always to prevent war. What makes me angry is, my husband's serving overseas. Military families want to know their loved ones are protected. 
Biden didn't protect them. And there have been 160 strikes. There shouldn't have been one. There shouldn't have been two. And you've got 160 and you've got dozens injured. We lost three heroes because Biden was scared of his own shadow. That's a truth. But what would that what would that mean in, in practice? When you say Biden, you said Biden didn't do something. What was that something that he should have the been doing? The very first strike that hit, you punch and you punch back hard. What they should be doing is going after every ounce of production of those missiles. Wherever those missiles are, you take that out. You does keep right. you take out the training sites. You go and you But does that risk escalating a war? Does, does that mean striking Iran directly? It means striking the resources that are allowing them to hurt our troops. That's what you're doing. It's not they're going after the, the, they're backed by Iran. Iran absolutely. says that they're not declaring the shots, but Iran's training them. They're providing intelligence. They're providing weapons. And this goes there back. would be no Hamas without Iran, Hezbollah without Iran, or Houthis without Iran. But yes, striking you're going, Iran is a really big escalation. And you go after wherever those missiles are, the production, wherever it is in Iraq and Syria, you take that out. Wherever it is in Lebanon that they're doing that, you take that out. You go after the leaders making the decisions. It's not after Iran, the country. It's after the people who are making these decisions. When Soleimani was, was assassinated, it sent a chill up their spine. They literally, right. it took their breath out. You have to be strategic. It's not but, starting war. It's actually preventing war. But do you think we can accomplish that without escalating to the point of war? I mean, there are some people who, who look at your um, candidacy and say, she's very hawkish. She, she's very hawkish, and she could bring us to a war. And why would I do that when my husband would be fighting in one? That's what you don't want. You actually prevent war. It's not being hawkish. What it is is it's being smart. The problem that we've had is that everybody waits for it to get bad before they do something about it. Where did this all start? None of this would have started had Biden not lifted the sanctions on Iran. You allowed million, billions of dollars to go in from China importing their oil. And what did that do? That gave money to the proxies to get these missiles, to do these things, to do the training, to invade Israel. All of that happened because they got money. And Biden still to this second hasn't increased sanctions on Iran. That's lunacy because you're just continuing to pay them for trying to now kill our soldiers. You, there are things we can do that are not war, but not having common sense, there's no excuse for that. And this is something where we've seen him do it with Iran. We saw him do it with Afghanistan. We're seeing him do it with Russia and Ukraine. You have to be tough. That doesn't mean starting a war. That actually means preventing war. But when countries see that you're tough and you're serious, they back off. By nature, they back off. Iran knows they can't beat America. They've always known that. But as long as they smell blood in the water, they're going to keep doing this. Governor Haley, want to thank you for coming by today. Thanks so much. Go to NikkiHaley.com. We're going to finish this. It's great to see you. Thanks. Appreciate it very, very much. Next on Squawk Pod. Interestingly, you called this a study and not an inquiry or investigation. Why did you do that? The Federal Trade Commission just looking into the artificial intelligence industry's biggest players. Chair Lena Khan joins us on set. The goal here is really to look under the hood. What are the deal terms? Is there exclusivity that's expected or required? Is there going to be privileged access? This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC, today with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Stand Andrew by. Here's Andrew. Welcome back to Squawk Box this morning. The Federal Trade Commission looking into recent deals made between uh, big tech giants, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, with artificial intelligence companies like um, OpenAI and Anthropic. The agency is saying it's going to scrutinize, quote, partnerships and investments to better understand their impact on the competitive landscape. Joining us right now in an exclusive interview is FTC Chair Lena Khan, and we're thrilled to have you at the table this morning. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. So help us understand how you're, how you're looking at this. These deals, if you will, are not classic mergers, if you will. These are effectively investments, but maybe they look a little bit like mergers to you. So we are looking closely at the strategic investments and partnerships between Microsoft and OpenAI, Alphabet, Amazon, and Anthropic. And the goal here is really to look under the hood and understand precisely what is the nature of the relationship here? What are the deal terms? Is there exclusivity that's expected or required? Is there going to be privileged access? Are there rights to board seats or other mechanisms to be exerting control or influence over the business strategy? And just to step back, I want to explain why we're doing this. Right At this moment, AI is a nascent technology that could catalyze enormous growth and innovation. There is enormous opportunity here for a vibrant market. But we also see risk. We see risk of consolidation. We see risk of monopolization. We're already hearing some of the classic national champion arguments, the idea that it's in somehow America's national interest to be protecting monopolies. And unfortunately, we've been down that road before. Uh, We see very clearly now with Boeing some of the dangers of that strategy where you had United CEO uh, Scott Kirby draw a straight line between the 1997 merger between Boeing and McDonnell Douglas and some of the problems we're seeing now with planes falling apart in the sky. So we need to be careful. Part of the advance, and frankly, the advance that the U.S. companies, OpenAI, Anthropic, and the likes have had, is the scale of capital that they've been able to access. So, so one of the things that AI requires more than anything else is literally just server farms. And it is super expensive, billions and billions of dollars. And effectively, as you know, OpenAI was not, not for profit. It effectively needed the money uh, ostensibly from Microsoft. But the question is, are there private markets or other money that you think that these companies could have accessed uh, rather than doing it with the, t- the traditional folks that are probably most incentivized to provide those funds? Look, I think you're absolutely right that these markets and some of these layers require enormous scale, uh, be it at the compute level, be it at the data level. I think we just need to be very wary when you have some of the existing incumbents that are threatened by this moment of technological disruption, that they could be using this moment to try to protect their moats and protect their monopolies, rather than allow the opportunity that this technology presents to fully flourish. Look, the the weekend that Sam Altman uh, Left AI, left OpenAI, and then came back in, and everything we heard from that. I mean, it did seem like a possibility that Microsoft was going to get basically a stealth takeover of Sam, his team, all of that right. information. That 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 did make me look at it a little differently. Have you figured out what happened? Is that what kind of set things off for you? So we've been watching this space quite closely. Uh, as a general matter, we you know launch an inquiry into cloud computing. That's another layer where you see significant amount of concentration. Um, you know, there was a lot of commentary in response to that incident, which I think really called into question, what is the relationship here? Is this right. really a passive investment or is something more going on? And I think anytime you have control or influence being exercised through some of these partnerships, you mean the, it's the something s- that- seats on the board now? 
Right. And, and you know, we're a competition enforcer, and right. so it could have implications for competition, and so we want to understand what's going on. Interestingly, you called this a study and not an inquiry or investigation. Why did you do that? Uh, we have a particular authority that lets us do market-wide studies rather than a law enforcement investigation into a particular target. So we thought, given where we are right now, it was more appropriate to take a holistic look. Does that change look. the dynamic, though, with which you have ability to subpoena or access internal emails and other types of information that you might want to get access to to better understand what's really happening under the hood? No. The information requests we sent have the force of law. We can enforce them in court if the companies defy them. So from that perspective, it's the same. Do you use these services yourself? Uh, I have used them in the past. Uh, you know, they're pretty remarkable in a whole set of ways. How do you use them? I mean, like, uh, do you use them to send emails? I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> I, I used one to uh, contest a medical bill, uh, you know, set, typed in my uh, general complaint and it spat out uh, back a response. So it was useful. Have you, you have not used one yet to see whether you could produce a suit against one of these companies? We haven't. I, I thought know. about doing that this morning before you got here. I have not done that yet, but that's on my Yeah, list. I know some lawyers have gotten into trouble with uh, courts and judges, uh, you know, fake citations and that sort of thing. So you got to be careful. Ro Khanna was here and he said that he might uh, push for everyone around OpenAI and some of these other artificial intelligence uh, companies and projects to try and find out what really happened that weekend of the OpenAI uh, Sam Altman battle. Might push to try and find out what the relationships were with some of these things. Which agency, is it Congress, you think will have more power to, to write laws and do some of these things? Do you think it's the FTC that will be able to dig deeper and, and, and break down some of these relationships? Who, who, who's going to have the authority and, and who's frankly is going to have the ability to get things done? Yeah, I mean, as a general matter, this is really an all-hands-on-deck kind of moment, uh, and we truly see interest across the federal government. Uh, the White House the other month put out an executive order on artificial intelligence, really you know, charging agencies across the board to bring all of their authorities to bear to make sure that we're guarding against some of the risks and dangers of this technology and really safeguarding the opportunities, including on the competition front. And so we're already seeing great intellectual leadership now is the time for the policy follow-on. I know you've said it's it's the kind of the standard playbook to say nationalistically we need to get ahead, and that's why you protect some of the monopolies. But they do have a point in that China is pushing so hard and so fast on AI. There is a concern that you don't want to get left behind as American. And as Andrew pointed out, this requires some really deep pockets, some deep spending. China's government is spending a lot of money on this. What happens if American enterprise is not doing the same? It's a really good question, and we've heard these arguments before, right? I mean, go back uh, several decades when the antitrust division was investigating AT&T. You heard a lot of arguments about how we shouldn't break up AT&T because we needed them to allow us to compete globally. We, at that moment, instead chose competition. We doubled down. We brought the suit. We required AT&T to open up its patent vault. We ended up them, breaking them up. That ended up feeding huge amounts of innovation. Countries at that moment that instead doubled down to protect their monopolies, unfortunately got left behind. Uh, talking about opening up uh, moats or, or things like that, I wanted to ask you about something that took place last week. I don't know if you saw Apple announcing that it's gonna change the way its app store works in Europe to comply with the new EU rules, uh, effectively allowing a side, what they call side door, so software that's not 
in the App Store. You can create your own App Store, all sorts of other things. However, they've created all sorts of other charges and things uh, that folks like Daniel Ek, who runs Spotify, are now complaining about. I'm curious what you thought of what they announced and also whether you think that you are going to be helping the EU in terms of um, how American companies comply with that law. So look, it's a really interesting moment as we see some of these rules come into effect. Um, I think we're going to see firsthand what about it works, what about it doesn't works. Uh, you know, we're really focused on U.S. enforcement, right. U.S. policymaking. As you know, Congress has been considering some analogous rules and policies that haven't yet gone into effect. And so if we, in fact, see that European citizens are benefiting from competition in ways that American citizens and companies are not, I think that could create additional incentive to move forward here. Other headline, I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you did, Microsoft Activision announcing that they're going to be uh, firing 1,900 people. Uh, Elizabeth Warren came out and said, here's a, here's a reason why this deal should never have been approved in the first place. You obviously didn't want it to be approved in the first place. How much should your job be about protecting employees' jobs in terms of how you think about a, a merger? But, but second, in, maybe in this specific case, we're now seeing layoffs in all sorts of parts of the technology stack and to other, other companies in, in, in the industry. And so when you look at something like that, do you say to yourself, that's a function of the deal itself? Do you say that would have happened anyway? Do you say, well, maybe it wouldn't have been 1,900 people. It might have been 800 people. Uh, tell, me, tell me what you think when you, when you, when you read a headline like that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me say my heart really goes out to the uh, 1,900 employees that got a red slip, uh, pink slip last week. You know, unfortunately, from where I sit, this is not all too uncommon. After these mega mergers, you often see layoffs. From our perspective as an antitrust enforcer, we're supposed to protect competition in all markets. That includes labor markets. I think one of the things to think about is, you know, these 1,900 employees that were laid off, there could be among them the next big game developer, right? What does the market now look like for their employment? I mean, over the last few years, through these waves of acquisitions, you've had a lot of the independent studios gobbled up. And just in terms of getting your idea to market, there are fewer and fewer pathways. And so that's bad for the workers, but it's ultimately also bad for consumers and but for the market But you don't think that one of those people who gets laid off, hopefully, I mean, that you think is super talented to the extent that they have this sort of genius idea in their head, can't go find a venture capitalist or some other kind of capital, create their game, and then, frankly, get gobbled up all over again by somebody else, and that that's a sort of fabulous version of capitalism if it works that way? Maybe, but in order for that to happen, they have to get their video game to market, right? What are the pathways to doing that? You increasingly now have a very small number of walled gardens, and so the big question is going to be, is that independent gamer going to be able to get their game in front of players in the first instance, right? And so I think as you've seen the shift from a more independent model where you have multiple pathways to reach gamers to instead now increasingly these you know, right. two walled gardens, are you going to be able to get into the walled garden? Are they going to have an interest to let you in? I think these are some of the big questions. Lena Khan, thank you for being here this morning. You went through a lot of stuff. This is very, very helpful. Thank you. Thanks. That's Squawk Pod for today, this Monday. Thanks for listening. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, please let us know. On Apple Podcasts, you can write a brief review with your thoughts or give us a rating, anything up to five stars or the full five stars. That helps other listeners discover what we do. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.
That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.